thanks for tuning in this week to Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church plant located in the Pasadena area. It is our mission to save the lost, to equip the saved, to serve both the lost and the saved, and finally to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting from the beginning of a book and working our way through all the way till the end. It is our prayer that you would grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ through his word. Well, this morning we're going to be looking at a tale of two lives, two lives that are being lived completely opposite to one another. We're going to be looking at a man named Herod, uh, whose life is all about self-exaltation, a life all about exalting himself. And then we're going to see Peter, who's a man who's all about God-exaltation, a life that is uh, purpose is exalting God. And we're going to see how God responds to both of these men and the things that they exalt. And as we look at the choices that these two men make as to what they exalt, I want us to realize that all of us on a daily basis make that choice. What are we going to exalt? Are we going to be a self-exalter? Is it going to be all about us? Or are we going to be those who exalt God? And as we look at Herod and we look at Peter and we look at what they exalt in their lives, I want you to kind of examine your own life and ask yourself the question, what is it that I'm exalting? What is it that I'm exalting in my own life? Am I a self-exalter or am I a God-exalter? And if the answer is not God, I would challenge you before you leave here this morning that you would first ask God to forgive you for that, but also to change you, to help you to be someone who brings exaltation to him and him alone. So there's a lot that we can learn here in chapter 12 from uh, both of these men, what not to do and what to do. Uh, and so I think we have a lot of challenges that we're going to see as we look at this tale of two lives here in Acts chapter 12. And let's start in verse 1, which says this. Now about that time, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some from the church. So Luke tells us that Herod the king, now he has stretched out his hand to harass. He's bringing persecution to believers in the church. And before we move on, I just want to note something for you, because you're probably familiar if you go through the Gospels, you hear Herod, this king, and you see him from Jesus' birth. You see him throughout the Gospels. We now see him in the book of Acts. We're going to see again later in the book of Acts. But what I want you to know is they're not all the same person. Uh, We have the same title, but we don't don't have the same individual. And so I just want you to know there's actually four different Herods that we see from the Gospels through the book of Acts. The first Herod is the Herod that ruled over the Jews. He was referred to as Herod the Great. This is the Herod that you see at the birth of Jesus, the one who killed all the baby boys two years and under in order to try to kill Jesus. That is Herod the Great. Herod the Great, he had a son. He named his son Antipas. His son took over for him after he died, and he ruled over the Jews, and he took the name of his father, Herod, and so he's referred to as Herod Antipas. Uh, He also was very brutal. This is the one that had John the Baptist killed. This is the one when Jesus was on trial that he stood before, but they're two different men. There's the father, and there's the son. But we also have another uh, of one of Herod's descendants. Herod's grandchild uh, is named Herod Agrippa. Uh, that's the Herod that we see here in Acts chapter 12. So we have Herod the Great, we have his son, we have his grandson here, and he, just like uh, the two before, is a brutal person, as we're going to see in chapter 12. He's also a murderer. And Herod Agrippa has a son, Herod Agrippa the II. Uh, and so that's the fourth one. We're going to see Paul, at the end of his life, have to stand before Herod Agrippa the Second. That's 
actually who he goes uh, before before going to Rome. And so uh, in Acts and in the Gospels, we have these four different kings, these four different men who ruled over the nation of Israel. They all took this title Herod, and so it's a common misconception as you read through it that it's the same guy, unless you pay attention because it does say that some of them die. Um, but, you know, so it's four different individuals. This is the third one, the, the grandson of Herod the Great, Herod Agrippa, we see here in Acts chapter 12. Another important thing to note about all of these Herods is that the Jewish people did not want them to be their king. They did not choose for them to be their king. Remember when the kingship started, they got to choose, well, actually God anointed, but they were happy with the choice. The Romans were the ones who chose all the Herods. Uh, and so the Jews despised Herod the Great and his you know, descendants because they didn't want to be ruled by Herod. They didn't choose to be ruled by Herod. This is something that the Romans put in charge and over them. And because of that, all of the Herods, especially here, Herod Agrippa, they tried to do what they could to try to gain some kind of connection with the Jews because, hey, you guys don't like me. Uh, I was appointed by Rome. So what can we do in order to you know, get your approval? And so what we see with Herod Agrippa here is that he was constantly trying to find ways to help gain uh, approval from the Jews. And, you know, he was like most political leaders today, wanting to raise his approval ratings, wanting to do what he could to gain that. And one of the ways he did this was by respecting the Jewish laws and observing their sacrifices and their customs. Uh, And this wasn't something normal for someone appointed by Rome. And so he tried to make those inroads of, you know what, I'll let you do your sacrificial system. I'll let you do these different things. Uh, And, you know, I'm sure that Herod observed that Christians were people that the Jewish leaders did not like. Christians were people that the Jewish leaders despised. And Herod was always trying to get in good with the Jewish leaders, religious leaders, because he realized, you know what, if I'm good with the religious leaders, then more of the Jewish people are going to respond in a favorable way to me. And so he sees this. He sees, oh, the religious leaders, they don't like Christians. I want to get in with Christians. I want my approval rating to, not with Christians, with the religious leaders. I want my approval rating to go up. And so notice he starts this persecution of Christians, probably thinking, hey, this is going to help me among the Jews. This is going to be something that they're going to respond well with. And notice how far he goes in his persecution of the church, starting in verse 2. Then Herod killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter also. Now it was during the day of unleavened bread, so when he had arrested him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him before the people after Passover. So Herod has the apostle James, a brother of John, killed with the sword. This is a new and sad development in the history of the early church. James, one of the apostles, is now killed. This is the first apostle that has been martyred. And you know, I think, you know, there was probably this thought maybe from many of them that, you know, these apostles have this special protection from God and nothing's going to happen to them. And all of a sudden, boom, James now is killed. Now, he's not the first martyr. We noted already in the book of Acts that Stephen was the first martyr. And after Stephen was killed, Saul brought such persecution on the church that many people were killed for their belief in Jesus. But James now is the first of the apostles. 
You know, I think many people might have thought James, even more than other apostles, would have been protected because remember Peter, James, and John and the Gospels, they were part of that inner circle with Jesus. Jesus took those disciples to places that he didn't take any of the other disciples to. They had this intimate experience. They experienced things with Jesus that others didn't. And I'm sure that people might have thought, well, well, surely Peter, James, and John, I mean, there's going to be a divine protection for them. Surely those guys aren't going to die. Surely those guys aren't going to have to go through persecution. And now James... He's been killed. Herod does that. You know, I think it's important to note that Jesus nowhere in Scripture promises special protection for his closest followers. He doesn't promise special protection for any of us. Jesus said actually to his disciples in Matthew chapter 10 to be ready for persecution. Verse 17, beware of men, for they will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in their synagogues. You will be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. I think it's important for us as believers to understand that we're not promised protection from persecution from this world. Jesus does not promise to protect us or deliver us from persecution. Now, he does promise to always be with us in the midst of it. He does promise to never leave us while we're going through it. He does promise to strengthen us while we're in it, but he does not promise to remove it. He does not promise to say, you know what, I'm just not going to allow you to be persecuted. I think this is very important to understand because, you know, I've come across a lot of believers who get so upset when they're being persecuted because they have this unbiblical, unbiblical view that I've been promised no persecution. Why am I going through this? Why is God allowing this sinful world to persecute me because I believe in Jesus? I just don't get it. Why is it happening? Surely God wouldn't allow that. There's no promise in Scripture of that. Understand that. Actually, there's a promise in Scripture that we probably don't like. I've never seen it on anybody's wall. I've never seen it on a little sticky note, this wonderful promise that we want to hold to. You see lots of promises on people's walls. This is not one I've never seen. 2 Timothy 3.12, it says this. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. What a promise that we want to hold on to, right? Yeah, write that down, put it on your refrigerator, put it over you know, your bed every night you read it. I mean, that's not one that we like to hear. That's not one we like to hold on to, but it's true. If you are living for Jesus Christ in a sinful world that rejects him, guess what the promise is for you? They are going to persecute you, just like they persecuted him. Understand that. Don't think that you have some get-out-of-jail-free card. Don't understand. This is not something that we have a promise to escape. We actually have a promise that it's going to happen. James didn't escape it. He got killed by Herod. And we're told that because it pleased the Jews, he thinks, oh, wow, if killing James pleases them, let's keep going. Now he seizes Peter also. So Herod sees the Jews are pleased with his killing of James, and he says, this is my opportunity to raise my approval rating. They already like me because I just killed James. How much more is my approval rating going to go up if I get Peter and kill him? I mean, he is like the top apostle. He's been the one preaching the most. If I can take out Peter, man, my approval rating will go through the roof. Notice Herod is all about self-exaltation. What can I do to exalt myself? What can I do to improve my own status? What can I do to improve my approval ratings among the Jews? And notice he doesn't care what he has to do in order to exalt himself. Notice he doesn't care what he has to do in order to hurt someone. He doesn't care who he has to step on. He doesn't care who he has to kill in order to accomplish this. You know, sadly, this is a sentiment of many people today. 
They're willing to do whatever it takes to exalt themselves, even if that means destroying the lives of others. As long as they're exalted, they're okay with it. It doesn't matter what you go through as long as what they want is achieved and accomplished. You know, I think we've seen this so clearly demonstrated in the last year with politicians. Many of them are willing to say and do anything as long as their approval ratings go up, as long as they're exalted. They don't care who they step on. They don't care who they destroy. They don't care who they do whatever to. Uh, And it's, you know, not surprising by politicians who aren't Christians. You you expect sinful people to behave in a sinful way. The sad thing to me is that there are politicians who are self-proclaimed Christians doing the same thing. Ones who are saying, oh yes, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, but yet I'm willing to do whatever it takes to get the approval ratings to go up. I can lie, I can cheat, I can steal, I can you know, defame people around me, it doesn't matter. That's sad, because you know what? There's no place in the Christian life for self-exaltation. There was only one person who ever lived who had the right before God to be exalted, to say, I can exalt myself, and that was Jesus Christ, because he is God. He's the only one who walked the earth who had the right to say, you know what, I'm going to exalt myself if I want to, but you know what, he never did. The only person who had the right to do it chose not to do it. Jesus deserved to be exalted, but never did, so why do we think, those who don't deserve to be exalted, why do we think it's okay for us to self-exalt ourselves? Jesus is our perfect example, especially in this area of being a God-exalter instead of being a self-exalter. You know, Paul says something very challenging in Philippians chapter 2 concerning this, starting in verse 5. He says this, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Notice this challenge. You guys need to have the mind of Christ. This humility, this mindset that you say, you know what, even though I am God, it's not beneath me to come as a man and be a servant and be obedient to the point of death and give my life for others. Jesus is the perfect example of someone who said, you know what, I'm not going to be a self-exalter. I'm going to be a God-exalter. I'm going to humble myself and serve God and serve others. Paul says, have that mindset, have that humility, have that perspective on life where it's not about me and what I can do to exalt myself, but it's about God and how I can exalt him and follow him. It's about others. Herod, he's a self-exalter. He has Peter arrested with the plan of killing him so he can improve his approval ratings among the Jews. But instead of killing Peter right away, he puts him into prison. And Luke gives us the reason why Herod does this. Herod had Peter arrested during the start of Passover feast, which lasted one week. And his intention was to bring Peter before the Jews after the feast was over and then have him killed. Now, the reason Herod does this is because according to Jewish law, you weren't allowed to kill anybody during that. And so Herod, once again, he's trying to get in with the Jews. He likes them to be able to do their sacrificial system. He wants to actually abide by the laws. There's no point in doing something that's going to get disapproval because the whole point of killing Peter is to get approval. And so he says, fine, I'm going to arrest you. I'm going to keep you in prison. When the Passover feast is done, I'm going to bring you in front of the Jews. I'm going to kill you. And once again, just like I killed James, man, everyone's going to be so pleased with me. So Peter ha- uh, Herod has Peter arrested, but um, notice what we're told he does. He delivered him to four squads of soldiers to keep him. 
Now, you might read that and think, you know, okay, just keep going. But if you know the history of uh, the time back then, it was mostly common if you arrest someone and put them into prison, you just have one guard guarding that individual, especially if they were, you know, a significant person that you wanted to make sure nothing happened to. You would just chain them to one guard. That was significant enough. That would be fine. You know, nothing was going to happen. Well, no, Herod, he takes some extreme measures. Four squads of soldiers keep Peter. Now, a squad of soldiers consisted of four guards. So he has four squads of four guards, so he has 16 guards. Normally they had one, he puts 16. Well, why such security measures? Well, remember back in Acts chapter 5? The apostles get thrown into prison. What happens? They miraculously escape. Uh, so I'm sure Herod was very aware of that. and He's like, no, 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 Peter's not getting out this time. I am going to put four squads of guards. There's going to be 16 guys guarding him. There's no way he's getting out, uh, and I'm going to keep him there, and then... When the end of this Passover feast is done, I'm going to kill him, and everything's going to turn out well for me. Well, notice now as Herod does this, he places Peter into prison. What's the church's response? What is it that they're doing after James has been killed? Now the next guy who's you know one of the top people leading the church, he's imprisoned, and they know once the feast of Passover is done, the plan is for Herod to kill him as well. Let's see what they do in response to this. Verse 5 says this, Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. Notice the church responds to Peter's imprisonment through constant prayer to God. Now, I find this Greek word interesting that we have translated constant in our English. It means continual, fervent, intent, and earnest. It's the same Greek word that Luke used to describe Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, remember that prayer, right? When he's sweating great drops of blood, it was an intense prayer. It was something that was fervent and earnest. It wasn't just continual as in it was regular. There was something more to it than that. So the church isn't just praying continually for Peter. They are praying prayers that are fervent, intent, and earnest. They want to see God move on behalf of Peter, who's now in prison. You know, I think this is something where it's important just to stop and note two important things that our prayers should include. First, our prayers should be regular. That would be a good, probably, uh, addition to our Christian life, because I think probably a lot of us, at least at times in our walk with Christ, we struggle with regular prayer. But don't just have regular prayer. Also, second, our prayers should be fervent, intent, and earnest. You know, we pray, we should really have a heart for what we're praying for. I find that oftentimes, I've seen it in my own life, I see it in other people's lives, we're asking God to care about something that we really don't. What's the point? I mean, you, you, oh Lord, please, you have a heart for this. I don't have a heart for this. I don't care if you move here. I don't care about that person. I don't care about that situation, but I hope you do. And we kind of just throw out prayers that we really don't have a heart for. We're really not fervent and we don't really have a desire to see answered. I've been guilty of this. I know going through my Christian life, I've seen many times where I was not regular in prayer, many times where I was not fervent and intent and really praying and basically just asking God to to do something that I didn't really care about. And I found, you know what? One, that doesn't really, it's not very effective, but that's not the way that God wants us to pray. So Peter, he's in prison, he's about to be killed, and the church responds with continually and intently praying for him. Now, notice what happens. They're praying for Peter. They want God to deliver Peter. They're asking for that. Verse 6 says this. 
And when Herod was about to bring him out, that night Peter was sleeping bound with two chains between two soldiers, and the guards before the door were keeping the prison. Now behold, an angel of the Lord stood by him, and a light shone in the prison. And he struck Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise quickly. And his chains fell off his hands. Then the angel said to him, Gird yourself and tie on your sandals. So that he did. And he said to him, Put on your garments and follow me. So he went out and followed him and not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they were past the first and the second guard post, they came to the iron gate that leads to the city, which opened to them of its own accord. And they went out and went down one street and immediately the angel departed from him. And when Peter had come to himself, he said, now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and has delivered me from the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the Jewish people. Notice the first thing we're told here is that Herod was about to bring Peter out. Now, I already mentioned Herod's waiting for the Passover feast to be finished because he doesn't want to go against Jewish law. And so it's about to end. So it's the night before the Passover feast ends. So the next morning, time for Peter to die. He's got it all planned. He's all ready. You know, when morning comes, I'm going to bring him before the religious leaders. I'm going to kill Peter. That is the plan. So it's the final night of the feast, and in the morning, the plan is for Peter to be killed. Now, I want you to try to put yourself in Peter's situation. First of all, I want you to realize your close friend, James, the one that you spent three years with with Jesus, the one that you did ministry with, Herod's just killed him. So you know Herod means business. You know that Herod is willing to go to those lengths. He's just died, and you know in the morning, Herod's plan is to kill you. I want you to think about that night. You're in prison. How would you respond? How would you respond with the knowledge that in the morning, Herod has a plan to kill me? What would your night be like? What would you be thinking? What would you be doing? You know, how would your night, do you think, there in that prison cell before your execution in the morning be? What would be going through your mind? You know, I'm sure a lot of us would respond by spending the whole night awake, stressing, worrying, oh my goodness, this is it, this is the end, what's going to happen, what's it going to be like, is it going to be quick? But notice what Peter's doing on the night before he's meant to be killed. We're told that night Peter was sleeping, bound with two chains between two soldiers. Think of this, would that be what you would be doing? This is your final night, you're in prison, and even if nothing was going to happen to you in the morning, you're bound with chains between two soldiers, and Peter is fast asleep. I find this very fascinating. I find this very interesting because I think the only way that Peter really could get to that place of just sound sleep on a night before he's about to be executed is if he just had complete faith and trust in God. God, my life's in your hands. Whatever you want to do with it is fine. If in the morning I'm going to be killed and come meet you and be with you forever in heaven, that's fine. If you want to deliver me, that's fine. But there had to be this trust and this faith that, you know what, my life's in your hands and so I can just sleep knowing that reality. I think Peter recognized something very important that we need to understand as well. What Peter does here is very God-exalting, not self-exalting. I think an important question to ask ourselves, if Peter had remained awake, worrying, fretting, stressing about his possible execution, if he spent all night focused on himself, all night thinking about these things, what would that have done to benefit his circumstances? What would that have done to benefit his situation? 
all night long worrying, all night long stressing, all night long wondering what the morning would hold, how would that have helped him in any way, shape, or form? The answer is, it wouldn't have. It wouldn't have in the least. Actually, it would have made his night miserable. It would have made his night horrible. All night long, he would just be dwelling on this negative stuff that would have just been something that would have, he would have been sleepless. He would have been sad. All these different emotions would have come, but instead he was sleeping. He was sound asleep between two guards. Why? Because his faith and trust was in the Lord. Yeah, I think so often we come across difficulty, we come across hardships, we come across you know, problems in our life, and our response to that is stress. Our response to that is worry. And we think, this is really going to benefit me. I'll stress and worry, and somehow it's going to change my circumstances. Somehow it's going to help my circumstances. It doesn't. But you know what? Jesus tells us that. Matthew chapter 6, Jesus has some wonderful words of wisdom when it comes to worry. He says, therefore I say to you, Do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? Notice Jesus' challenge. Don't worry about your life. Don't worry about what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, what you're going to wear. Why? Because God knows and will take care of you. Trust him with your life. But I want to draw your attention to what he says in verse 27. Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? What Jesus is saying is, is which of you, by worrying, can add anything positive to your situation? Which of you, by worrying, that's going to help what's going on in any way, shape, or form? He's just bringing up this question of, recognize, worry does nothing for you. Worry doesn't help you. Don't do it. Just trust me. Trust that I'll take care of you. Trust that I'll take care of the situation. Psalm 127.2 says, God gives his beloved sleep. Peter's not worrying. He's just trusting in the Lord, and he has a nice, sound sleep. And you know what? Peter is so sound asleep that when this angel comes to rescue him from prison, we're told that the angel has to strike Peter on the side to wake him up. So Peter's there, probably snoring, chained up between these two guards, and the angel comes and strikes him, and all of a sudden, the chains fall off of Peter. The angel tells Peter, get up. Put on your sandals, put on your clothes, and he starts leading him out of the prison. And we're told that that Peter just thinks it's a vision. He doesn't even think this is real because surely this isn't happening right now. You know, I must be dreaming or something. And so he goes past the first guard post. He goes past the second guard post. Then he comes to the iron gates that you have to go through to get out into the city outside of the prison. And all of a sudden, they just automatically open, and he walks out. Boom, the angel's gone, and there he is, rescued from this prison. You know, this must have been such a mind-boggling experience because then Peter finally clicks, whoa, this actually just happened. You know, this reminds me of a story of an Amish man and his son who saw an elevator for the first time. Obviously, Amish people, they don't have any electricity and things, so they had never seen an elevator. And the Amish man and his son were visiting a mall, and they were amazed by almost everything they saw, but especially these two shiny walls that kept opening up, and people would go into them, and they would close again. And the boy asked his father, what is it, father? The father, never having seen an elevator, responded, son, I've never seen anything like it in my life. I don't know what it is. 
While the boy and his father were watching wide-eyed, an old lady in a wheelchair rolled up to the moving walls and pressed the button. The walls opened and the lady rolled in between them into a small room. The doors closed and they see above the elevator these numbers that go up and they come back down. The doors open again and this beautiful young 24-year-old woman comes out. The father says to his son, go get your mother. Yeah, we marvel when we see things for the first time that men can make, but you know what? An even greater marvel when we see something that God does supernaturally. And Peter experiences this, and he's blown away by it. And notice as he's now miraculously set free, he says, Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and has delivered me from the hand of Herod and from all the expectations of the Jewish people. Peter recognizes this is God. I'm giving glory to God for what he's done. He's delivered me from Herod's hand and from what the Jewish people wanted in my execution. Well, now Peter's been delivered from prison, and he goes to the house. There's a prayer meeting. Remember at this house, they're praying for Peter's deliverance. And so he actually goes to this specific house where this prayer meeting's happening for his deliverance. I want you to keep that in mind as we look at what happens next, which is kind of a humorous part of this story. Verse 12. So when he had considered this, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. And as Peter knocked at the door of the gate, a girl named Rhoda came to answer. When she recognized Peter's voice, because of her gladness, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter stood before the gate. But they said to her, you're beside yourself. Yet she kept insisting that it was so. So they said, it's his angel. Now, Peter continued knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. But motioning to them with his hand to keep silent, he declared to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison, and he said, Go and tell these things to James and the brethren, and he departed and went to another place. This is so humorous what takes place here, but I think it is so true so often in our prayer times to the Lord. Notice this, there is the home of Mary, This is where they have this prayer meeting. They're in constant, fervent prayer. Lord, deliver Peter from prison. Well, Peter shows up at the house. He starts knocking on the door. The girl who's a servant girl, Rhoda, she comes and she answers the door and she recognizes Peter's voice. She's so excited that instead of letting Peter in, which she should have done, she runs to the prayer meeting and she says to everyone, Peter's here. And I notice their response. (laughs) No, you're beside yourself. He's definitely not here. He's in prison. Why do you think we're praying here? No, no, he's knocking at the door right now. No, he's not here. That must just be Peter's angel. No, really, he's knocking. He's here. And then they finally let him in and they realize, wow, astonishment. Peter's here, just like we were praying would happen. I want you to notice the response of this prayer meeting to Rhoda's news. Because first, you're beside yourself. You don't know what you're talking about. Peter is still in prison. Yeah, I find this very interesting because here's a group of believers praying for Peter to be delivered from prison, but they don't really believe it's going to happen. Have you ever been in that situation? You're praying for something, but really deep down inside, you don't really think God's going to do it. Oh, Lord, move in power, bring Peter out of prison, but yet we really don't believe it's going to happen. We're gathered. We know we should. We know it's important. We know that's what you call us to do is pray for him, but I don't think they really believed it was going to transpire, and their response to Peter showing up kind of reveals that. He's knocking at the door. Rhoda runs in. She tells them, and their first thing is just, you're crazy. You're beside yourself. You don't know what you're talking about. 
wait a second, aren't you praying that Peter would be set free? And then it gets really silly because he's like, no, really, he's at the door. And notice their second explanation, which doesn't even really make sense. Oh, that's just Peter's angel. What are you talking about? I mean, you're willing to say it's Peter's angel at the door, but not Peter himself because you just don't really think that God will do it. And then finally, Peter's still knocking. Now, remember, Peter just miraculously escaped prison. Herod wants him dead. He's probably like, let me in, guys. You know, this isn't safe for me out here. And so finally, they open the door and we're told they're astonished. Why are they astonished? Well, they might be a little bit astonished that he was miraculously delivered from prison. But I also think they're astonished that God actually answered their request, that there is Peter They're in front of them. They didn't actually believe it was going to happen, but yet it does. Now, I do want to say we need to give them some slack. We also need to put ourselves in their circumstance because oftentimes we point the finger at the disciples. We point the finger at people like, come on, how could you? But notice this. James, and I'm convinced, we're not told in the text, but I'm pretty sure they prayed for James. I'm pretty sure that they were asking that God would protect James. And guess what? James was killed. And James is now dead, and you know, there's something that happens when you pray that God would do something, and then he chooses not to. The next time you come to prayer, there's not the same kind of assurance, there's not the same kind of faith. It does do something to your prayer, especially if it's the same type of circumstance or situation. And so if they were praying for James, and he's dead, and now they're lifting up Peter, I can understand why there would be some doubt. I can understand why they would think, you know what, we're lifting you up, Peter, to the Lord, but we don't really think you're going to get out of this situation. Look what just happened to James. But you know, in the midst of their prayer meeting, God answers their prayer and reveals to them that he did truly want to do what they wanted to see happen. You know, see, the truth is God answers prayer, something that we, answer, we, we understand intellectually. But you know what? When the evidence is knocking at the door, sometimes we find it hard to believe. You know, I've been guilty of praying for things that I didn't expect God to answer. You know, I was faithful to do it, but not really expecting much from it. I remember specifically my brother just totally strung out on drugs and totally far from God. And and I was praying, Lord, I want to see him come and actually want to get off drugs and want to get right with you. And if I'm honest, as I prayed that, I thought this is never going to happen. Unless definitely not right now. I know where my brother's at. I know how far he is from God. I know how, you know, addicted he is to these drugs. I just didn't think anything was going to change. And so I was astonished when my brother comes to me not long after I prayed that prayer saying, you know what, I've hit rock bottom. I want to get clean. I want to get off these drugs. I want to go to church with you. I'm like, really? I prayed that, but I didn't expect that response. When I should have been more anticipating that God was moving, I didn't. But you know what? I am very grateful. I'm sure that those in Mary's home were very grateful that even when we have just a little faith, God can still work. I'm grateful for that, that even when I am faithless, he is faithful. Even when my faith is little, he is such a big God that he can still move. You know, in Mark chapter 9, there's a father who finds himself in a position where he's asking God to do something, but really he doesn't have the kind of faith that he needs to for God to accomplish it. The father's son was demon-possessed. He comes to Jesus to ask Jesus to cast this demon out of his son. And I want you to notice Jesus' response to this father and then the father's response back to Jesus in Mark chapter 9, verse 23 and 24. Jesus said to him, You can believe, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. 
So here's this father. He's desperate to see his son who's demon-possessed delivered from this demon. And he comes to Jesus. And Jesus' response is, you know, if you can believe, all things are possible. And this father just thinks within himself and he recognizes there's a part of me that believes and there's a part of me that doesn't. And with tears, he cries out, Lord, I believe, but he's very sincere and honest. Help my unbelief because there's a part of me that doesn't believe and there's a part of me that does believe. And I can relate a lot to this father because there have been so many times in my Christian life where this was me, where it's like, Lord, I believe maybe that you can, but I don't really know if I believe that you will, kind of like with my brother's situation. Or, you know, there's just this, this mixture of, yes, there's a belief here, but there's an unbelief here. And so the prayer is also, Lord, help my unbelief. Help me to grow in my belief, my faith, my trust in you, because I want to be that person who can completely trust you. And right now, I'm not quite there in this circumstance or this situation. And God knows that. I'm glad that this father was completely real and honest, wasn't just saying, oh, I totally believe when he didn't. He said, there is some belief in me, but there's some unbelief, and I want you to help me grow in that. And if you find yourself in that place, just be real with the Lord and say, yes, uh, I'm not there, and I need your help. I want you to help me grow to be a person who can truly trust you in these types of circumstances. You know, I think it's also important that faith is not some magical power to get rid of your problems or to get everything that you want Faith is important. Faith is something that we see as significant through the Bible. We see it significant in the life of Jesus as he talks to people. Oftentimes, your faith has made you well. But we've had, you know, teachings through the church that have taken that to an extreme of, you know what, if you just have enough faith, you'll have no problems. If you just have enough faith, you can have anything you want. And that is not what the Bible teaches, that, you know, you're not going to have any poverty, any hardship, any persecution if your faith is strong enough. But you know what? Hebrews chapter 11, it's the chapter that we focus on the people of faith. Here are the people that are highlighted as the most faithful in the Bible. And it has this list of them. But I want you to note, towards the end of Hebrews chapter 11, it tells all these things that their faith produced. And let's look at this list for a moment, because I think it's important to note. It starts off in verse 33. Who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouth of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of wickedness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the enemies of aliens, women received their dead, raised to life again. Now, many who just want to say, hey, look at the positive results of what faith can do, because you look at that first list and you say, man, if you have enough faith, look what God can do in your life. And there's truth to that. Yes, God can do amazing things as you place your faith in him. But let's not miss the reality that the list continues. Others were tortured not accepting deliverance that might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had a trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawed in two, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. You see, faith is not having this magic power to get out of problems. Faith is about trusting God no matter what problem you face. And we see this list of, yes, sometimes God's going to do great things through you, but also sometimes you're going to suffer and go through persecution. And the reality is, I have faith in God no matter what. His life, my life is in his hands. I trust him, whether it's some wonderful thing that he does or whether it's persecution that I suffer. That's the kind of faith that God wants us to have. And I think a great example of this is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And any of you who grew up in church, this is one of those stories that, you know, you got David and Goliath and you got the 
fiery furnace. That's the, the ones that you're always going to hear. But I want you to note their response because, you know what, King Nebuchadnezzar builds this idol. You guys better bow to it or I'm going to burn you alive. And they say, no way, we're not doing it. Notice this. They have something very powerful to say in Daniel chapter 3, verse 17. If that's the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. Notice this response. He's saying, you better bow down and worship my idol. And they said, you know what? God's able to deliver us from the fiery furnace, but they also recognize enough. But if he doesn't, that's okay. We're still not bowing down. Whether he rescues us from this or whether he lets us die at your hand, we're not going to bow to your idol. You see, they had a faith that said, you know what? I'm just trusting God with my life. Whether he rescues me from the fiery furnace, whether he lets me die in the fiery furnace, it's not going to change the fact that I give him my life. I'm going to serve him no matter what. That's the kind of faith that God wants. Not a faith that just says, oh, I just want to get lots of great things and escape lots of hardship. No, a faith that says, no matter what comes my way, Lord, my life's in your hands. Do with it as you please. Well, James or Peter, he gets out talks with the people in Mary's house who have been praying for him, and he says, go tell James and the brethren what God's done for me. Now, obviously, this is not the James that just was killed. Uh, it's most likely James, the brother uh, of Jesus, or more literally the half-brother uh, of Jesus. This was James who was the head of the Jerusalem church. He's most likely saying, tell all of them what the Lord has done. And when Peter said this, we're told that he departed to another place. Now, this is really kind of, except for a little bit in Acts chapter 15, this is kind of the end of Peter in the book of Acts. It's not the end of what God's doing, but remember I've already noted, you know, Luke is just highlighting different things that God did in Peter's life and Paul's life. And so he's not going to write about Peter anymore except a little instance uh, in Acts chapter 15 with an encounter he has with Paul. But this is kind of the end of, you know, Peter's been the big focus so far, and now he's going to kind of move off the scene. Uh, And so he's delivered from prison. Now let's see how Herod responds, because we've seen, you know, man, the the people praying, they're all excited for what God's done, but Herod, he wanted him dead. Uh, So let's see how Herod responds to the fact that Peter is not in prison when he goes to get him. Verse 18, then as soon as it was day, there was no small stir among the soldiers about what had uh, become of Peter. But when Herod had searched for him and not found him, he examined the guards and commanded that they should be put to death. And he went down from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. So daytime comes, the soldiers realize, oh, wait a second, where is Peter? They're searching for him, they're freaking out, and they have a good reason to freak out, because at that time, a guard, if he lost his um, prisoner, then that guard would suffer the fate of whatever the prisoner was in for. So if the prisoner was in for a beating, the guard would get beat. If the prisoner was in for death, the guard would be killed. And so Peter was there to be killed. So these guards are freaking out because Peter's gone. It's their job to watch him, make sure he doesn't go. And we see the response of Herod. Herod doesn't know where Peter went, blames the guards, has them all killed. Uh, And so once again, uh, Herod shows kind of his true colors here. Uh, And now we're going to see the end of Herod's life, Acts chapter 12 verse 20 notice what it says now Herod had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon but they came to him with one accord and having made Blastus the king's personal aide their friend they asked for peace because their country was supplied with food by the king's country so on a set day Herod arrayed in royal apparel sat on his throne and gave an oration to them and the people kept shouting the voice of a god and not of a man 
Then immediately an angel of the Lord struck him, because he did not give glory to God, and he was eaten by worms and died, but the word of God grew and multiplied. Herod's kingdom supplied food for the kingdoms of Tyre and Sidon, and for some reason, we're not told the detail, Herod became angry with them. It seemed like he was an angry man anyway. And so, but they realized, you know what? You don't want to anger the guy who supplies you with food. So they decide, we got to get in his good books. We got to do something, you know, that makes him happy with us so he doesn't keep food from us or do something even worse to us. And so he comes and he's all in his royal apparel. He sits on his throne. He's giving an oration to them. And notice how they respond to him speaking. They shout, The voice of a God and not of a man. The voice of a God and not of a man. Herod hears this. And you note through the book of Acts so far, when anyone gave credit to Peter or James or Paul and said, hey, oh, you know, basically elevating them to God-like status, they were very quickly to say, I am just a man. Don't you dare worship me. I'm just a man. Don't you dare exalt me. Oh, that's not Herod. Herod likes it. The voice of a God, not of a man. You're right. This is great. He receives their praise. He receives what they're saying. Yes, exalt me as God. That's how I feel. You know, I am your king. And and he, he receives this. And we're told immediately as he does this, an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give God glory and he was eaten by worms and died. You know, I think it's interesting to note how God responds to the self-exalter Herod versus how God responds to the God-exalter Peter. Because God sends an angel to both of them. And actually, the angel strikes both of them. Peter's sound asleep. The angel strikes him on the side, wakes him up in order to deliver him from prison. Herod, the self-exalter, receiving the praise that only God deserves. Yeah, the angel comes and strikes him as well, but strikes him with worms that ultimately kill him. Herod's life and reign as king come to an end. But notice what we're told. The word of God grew and multiplied. I love this because at the start of chapter 12, we see Herod. He's making havoc among the Christians. He kills James. His whole plan is, you know, I'm just going to destroy this Christian thing once and for all, and I'm going to get all this praise and approval rating from everyone. And so he has this plan to first kill James and then Peter, and it probably went on and on from there. But notice now at the end of this chapter, he's the one dead, and the church is growing. His plan was thwarted by God. And, and, you know, you look through history and you always see men who are seeking to destroy the church, who are seeking to destroy and combat with God, and the result's always the same. They're the ones who God deals with, and the church continues to thrive and to grow because no one can stand in the way of what God wants to do. Well, Luke ends this chapter telling us in verse 25, which probably would have been better in the next chapter, but I'll read it for you. Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry, and they also took with them John, whose surname was Mark. If you remember at the end of last chapter, Barnabas got Saul. They got together. They're doing ministry up there in Antioch, and now they get John Mark, and they bring them. Uh, John Mark joins them, and we're going to see uh, they're going to be doing some missionary journeys together in the next few chapters. Now, I want to close with a thought, because maybe some of you are thinking, and I know when I studied this, I I was pondering this as well. Why does God save Peter, deliver him, but allow James to be killed? That's something that we, I'm sure, deal with. Why let the apostle James die and rescue the apostle Peter? You know, when we don't know the whys of God, because we don't really have an answer to that, I would challenge you there's some things that you should be pondering because we all ask these questions you know of 
why did you allow this person to die? Or, or why did you allow this bad thing to happen? Or, or why didn't you allow this? Or why did you allow this to take place? And, and I think the first thing we need to take into consideration when we're asking why questions concerning God is something that we're told in Isaiah chapter 55 that gives us a very important perspective uh, to have. It says this, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. You know, one of the main reasons we ask why of God, why aren't you doing this, or why don't you do that, is because ultimately God's not doing it the way we thought it should be done. That's why we're saying, why? Why aren't you doing it the way I think you should have done it? Well, here's the thing we need to keep in mind. His ways are not my ways. His thoughts are not my thoughts. He's higher than me. He has a bigger perspective than me. He's all-knowing. He sees everything. We just have this little tiny perspective and view of things. And so we need to recognize, yeah, God's going to do a lot of things that aren't our ways. And thank goodness that he does. Because if he did everything the way we wanted, this world would be a mess. Because we don't know a lot of what's best, even for ourselves oftentimes. And so, you know what? When you don't know why God did something, Trust that his ways are more, better. Trust that his reasoning is different, but also better than yours. And trust that his way is perfect. He's loving, he's sinless, he's just. He does things always that are right. The second thing we need to take into consideration when we're asking these why questions is think about what you do know about God. Because we get so frustrated with what we don't know about God, and there's plenty that we don't know about God, and if we could understand everything about God, that would be a pretty you know, puny God because you know, we can't really grasp everything. But yet, you know, understand, we do know certain things about God and focus on what we do know. When you ask these why questions about God, keep in mind what the Bible clearly reveals about God and his nature. That God is love. That he loves you enough that he sent his son to die for you. That God is perfect. That is, he never does anything wrong. He doesn't have evil motives. A wonderful passage of scripture, Jeremiah 29, 11. I'm sure many of you already have it memorized. For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. God doesn't think evil thoughts towards you. He wants something that is good for you and you need to hold on to that. Even think, oh, well, I don't know why you're doing this, Lord. Well, trust that he does have what's best for you in mind. Trust that he loves you enough to do what's for best for you, even if you don't get it, even if you don't agree with him in it. And you know what? Another wonderful passage of scripture, Romans 8, 28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. You know, God can take anything to those who love him, not for anyone in the world, for those who love him or are called according to his purpose. Those who are believers, God can take what you see as negative and turn it into something that is good. So when we're asking a why question about God, like why did he allow James to die and Peter to live, Keep in mind the character of God. Keep in mind the nature of God. Keep in mind how much God loves you. Keep in mind his thoughts and his ways are higher than ours. And you know what? If God doesn't answer your question of why, just trust him. Because there's times when it's like, you know what? I can't really even explain this to you. You wouldn't get it at this point in time in your life. Just, just trust me. You know, those of us who have kids, we do that all the time. Oh, why, Daddy? Why, Daddy? You're never going to get it, Scarlett. Just trust me. You know, that's kind of the response of just well, because I say so, I can't, I can't communicate this to you. You just won't get it. You're too young. You know, that's how we are often as God's children of God. Just like, you're just going to have to trust me on this one. This is the way it's going to be done. And you just believe in me. Trust that I have what's best for you. So in this chapter, we learn that being a self-exalter ultimately brings self-destruction and has no place in the Christian life. 
God wants us to be God exalters, to live life with the purpose of exalting him in all that we do. I'll leave you with this verse to think about, 1 Corinthians 10.31. Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. He wants in everything that we do to bring him glory, to exalt him in every area of our life. Robert, he is leaving this week to do some ministry and mission training work and to be gone for a year to do ministry stuff. And I wanted him to come up, uh, share a little bit about what he's doing. But even more importantly, uh, we're going to take some time as a fellowship after he shares with us just to pray for him, uh, pray for the work that God's going to be doing in him and through him. Uh, And so, Robert, why don't you come on up here and uh, share a little bit about what the Lord's going to be doing with you. So uh, technically, I actually don't really know what I'm going to be doing too much. Uh, all I know is that, um, like, the main things I'm going to be doing is uh, teaching, like, yes, regular curriculum and stuff like that, mainly to kids. But the big part is um, helping out with the children's ministry. And that's um, sharing them the gospel, teaching them the word, and um, just, you know, loving on them, praying with them, and, you know, just showing them a little bit more of God and stuff. So I'm just working with Pottersfield and just, yeah, doing that. So I'm nervous. I really am nervous because for the first three months, it's going to be Guatemala. Uh, That's going to be, like, training for me, also doing everything. Um, Then after that will be six months, uh, wherever they send me. And that could be Kenya, staying in Guatemala, Cambodia, or this one Indian reservation, but it's their first time, so they don't really know how it's going to work. And then it's going to be a month Montana, then two months of internship at a uh, church back home. Yeah. Uh, no, um, uh, have you heard of Joel Orstein? Uh, no, sorry. <laughs> no, so, yeah, it's going to be here. Yeah. Any particular prayer requests? Uh, just, or like, I don't know, like today's message was just like pretty much exactly what I needed, you know, giving glory, glory to God and, um, you know, just keeping this year, you know, just faithful, like just living out of faith because I really am nervous. Like, man, I'm so unprepared. <laughs> I haven't even started packing. My room is still a mess. You know, some stuff is organized, but it's just like the stuff that we got, like just on, like, on one shelf, and that's it. And it's not even folded. And it's terrible. And, like, yeah. So, yeah, just, yeah, but the main thing is um, I want to be able to be used. And even if that's, you know, main, like, Okay, right, you're going to help in children's ministry. You want you to clean the toilets? You know, two months later, oh, good job. Keep doing it. You know, <laughs> even if it's like that, then, you know, how awesome. You know, I get to show you an act of faith, and, you know, that's what I want to do then. Clean toilets. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, Colson, why don't you come up, Ray and Kenny and Leanne. We're going to just uh, lay hands on Robert and... Uh, we're going to leave it open. Anyone who wants to pray, I uh, encourage you to do that, and uh, then I'm going to close this in prayer. But uh, let's just spend some time lifting him up. We can pray for the things that he asked for and pray for anything else that comes to mind. So let's do that. <laughs>